This is an Odyssey original. This is the War in Ukraine Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. And I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. Pictures and stories coming out of Bucha. Ukraine seemed to get more gruesome by the hour. Evidence mounts of Russian war crimes committed there while the troops occupied the suburb of Kiev. Yesterday on the podcast, we heard from a man from Kiev, Kirill, who talked about his friend who went to Bucha Monday and saw the horrors of the war up close. Today, we will hear from that friend. U.S. has imposed new sanctions against Russia. The two adults' daughters of Vladimir Putin are the targets. We'll look into what kind of impacts that could have on Putin himself and the war. We start with evidence of Russian war crimes. Anton photographed the destruction in Bucha and another nearby village and joins us now. Anton, thank you for taking the time to talk with us. What made you go to Bucha and what did you see there? Yes, hello, thank you for having me. Uh, actually, I went uh, not only to Bucha, I went to Hostomel, uh, it's near the Bucha, and I saw the Maria airplane, the famous one that was destroyed by Russian forces. And then the closer you get to the front line, the more destructions you see uh, destroyed. Uh, high-rise buildings uh, or private houses and other stuff. The enemy's tanks, the APCs. Well, I didn't see the people. They removed all the bodies. I was the very next day uh, after the uh, first time that our troops came in the Bucha and Hostomel. I visited the next day and they already removed the bodies. So I saw only blood and I saw the destroyed streets, exploded buildings and so on and so forth. And what was it like to, to see all this? And, and were you coming from, from Kiev? Because that really is not that far from, from that area. So this was, this was like, you know, in your own backyard pretty much. Uh, pretty much, yes. I live in the left side of the Kiev, but my parents live... Uh, closer to the butcher and uh, they um, heard uh, what was going on there uh, and uh, I was speaking uh, about uh, about this situation uh, is going what is going on with them and uh, in butcher too Anton, are uh, you are you a professional uh, photographer uh well I and um, I'm a history teacher. You're a history teacher. I got, yes, I, I received a degree in history, but in some point of my life, I re um, rethink my values and I became a photographer. Okay. And, and you decided to go there uh, for what reason? Uh, just curiosity, professionally? I mean, what made you uh, go from your hometown, which isn't far, as Mike uh, pointed out, mm -hmm. it isn't far. But why did you want to do that? To to photograph the historical record was record was that it? Uh, when I saw the first pictures from there, I was uh, I get very emotional. Uh, the tears start. Uh, I start crying, and I want to see it with my own eyes. And I want to pick. And I wanted to picture uh, anything that I could. Um, and I asked my friends. Um, I have some connections in the volunteers uh, among the volunteers, and they take me uh, with them uh, to the Bucha and Hostomel and uh, uh, Maria. What kind of an effect? 
did it have on you when you were walking around there and, and you were photographing and, and seeing these things? I got very emotional. I mostly come a calm person. I'm an introvert person, but I could not hide my emotions. Uh, and it will it affects my photography uh, very much. Uh, I work mostly in black and white, but uh, in uh, this situation, I wanted to show that uh, not only in black and white, but in color too, and I trying to uh, get uh, as much as I could then. Um, did you, when you were in Bucha, have an opportunity to interact, talk to any of the people there, survivors uh, who, who live there? And, and if you did, what kind of conversations did you have? Uh, actually, I have uh, an opportunity to talk uh, to some people. Uh, we went uh, to interview uh, some of them. Uh, they said that they won't give us the interview. Uh, uh, they will give us the interview after only after we eat some borscht or soup. Uh, <laughs> after you eat borscht <laughs> soup? Okay. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, they were very friendly. Friendly. They were smiling. They were happy to see us. Uh, before the war in Bucha, we uh, lived about 64,000 uh, people. Uh, now uh, it's about uh, 3,700, if I'm not but mistaken. It, but after you had, wow. the, after you had the, the borscht soup, uh, what did they tell you? <laughs> they told that uh, they have uh, some confrontations with the Russian military. Uh, and one man, I don't know how to believe this story or not, one man said that uh, his wife traded a sack of potatoes for a Kalashnikov assault rifle uh, of, of the soldier Russian because he was very hungry, because they were looting everything. Uh, the nearest uh, markets were looted. Uh, the nearest banks were looted. Uh, I saw the broken windows. Um, the neighbors that left in Bucha, the neighbors that left in Bucha, uh, they said that uh, Russian militaries uh, entered the uh, houses and looted them too. Uh, so I guess they were lucky. Given what we've seen. In, in the other pictures, you know, before you got there and how horrific some of this was with the bodies on the streets and these, you know, executions. Are you worried and is there a big sense and a big worry that, you know, as the Russians withdraw from some of these other cities that they have gone through the same kind of thing that happened in Bucha? I think we're not seeing the worst yet. We still have Mariupol. We still have uh, Kherson. I think that uh, in those cities, uh, things uh, can get worse than this. Anton, you, you mentioned that uh, you got there the other day, so the, the bodies had been removed, uh, but you saw a lot of blood. I understand, though, that you also saw and maybe photographed a lot of, of uh, dead dogs. Is that right? Yes, you're right. I saw many dead dogs. I saw dogs that uh, was... Um, uh, if I'm not mistaken, pedigree dogs uh, just uh, walking around uh, 
without uh, their um, without purpose i guess uh, but yes they kill, were killing dogs too so the russians were were killing the dogs yes and the dogs were 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 shot is that it or shot yes just lying on the road no. uh, i i don't no. know what to add to this uh, no no no, no. I, I can't just... do... <sighs> cruel and, and and if I can ask Anton, how old are are you? I'm thirty one. Thirty one. Thirty one. Um, how is this going to change your life? Do you think? Because you're a young guy, and and you you're seeing a lot of things that I'm sure, you, even though you were a history uh, teacher for a while, you studied history. I'm sure you never anticipated experiencing. Uh, yes. Uh, what's interesting for a historian is horrible for the person who's living through it. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I have uh, this point in my life that I think uh, um, the life is separated now before I saw Butcher, or before I didn't saw Butcher, and uh, after I saw it. So nothing gonna change anything uh, from now on that I saw. Thanks, both. Anton, thank you so much for talking to us. Uh, our best to you. Um, went there and photographed uh, Butcher the, the day after the Russians uh, withdrew from that town. Again, this is uh, not too far from, from Kiev. Vladimir Putin's two daughters, the targets of the latest U.S. sanctions against Russia over the war, a top Biden administration official says the U.S. thinks the daughters could control some of their father's extensive assets. There are also tougher penalties now in place against Russian banks, but will Putin respond more to his daughters being targeted? Chris Miller is director of the Foreign Policy Research Institute's Eurasia program and author of Putinomics, Money and Power in Resurgent Russia. The move against Putin's two adult daughters, will that have a significant impact on Putin's finances or is it uh, mostly symbolic, kind of like targeting the family of a mafia boss? Yeah, I think that move is uh, more symbolic. Um, everyone knows that Putin's daughters aren't decision makers in Russia. Um, and in fact, they've largely tried to stay out of public life. Well, it's changed a little bit over the past couple of years. But the most important measure that was announced today is that Russia's biggest bank, uh, is being subjected to the most strict sanctions that the U.S. has. Uh, and that's that's a big move that will impose some additional economic costs on Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. Okay, so we'll get more on that in a second. But the first one with, with the daughters, does it put the squeeze on them at all if they do have some of his assets? Because, you know, you, you give it to other people, so it doesn't look like you have all of your stuff, you know, right there in your bank account. If, if it's true, it would put the squeeze on them. I think the question um, of whether Putin is is making decisions based on his own personal bank accounts or those of his uh, his family or or whether he's making decisions about uh, Russian foreign policy, I think is a, is a different question. And it, it seems to me that uh, it's hard to explain what Russia's up to by um, thinking that Putin's trying to maximize his personal wealth. Uh, if he's trying to do that, uh, starting with Ukraine was a really very bad idea. Uh, and so I think we should take Putin on his word when he says that he wants to uh, make Ukraine subordinate to Russia. And he thinks that Russia's great power status on the world stage requires Russia to control Ukraine. Okay, but but that said, 
Even uh, Vladimir Putin, right, needs the support of some people uh, in Russia. Uh, and I'm not talking about the populace. I'm talking about the, these oligarchs and his his old buddies from when he was in the KGB who have made a lot of money in recent uh, decades, right? Uh, is part of the idea of these sanctions against those individuals to squeeze them so tightly that they'll what? Turn on him? And is that plausible? Well, I think you need to differentiate between the KGB elite uh, and Russia's business elite who are not from the KGB. Uh, and when we talk about oligarchs, we mostly refer to the latter category, people who run big businesses and often have big yachts that are parked uh, in, in Mediterranean ports. But in most cases, these aren't people who actually wield real power in Russia. The real power, as you say, is the former KGB chiefs who still run uh, big parts of the Russian security services. Uh, it's not plausible that targeting uh, the oligarchs who are simply involved in business is going to change Russian foreign policy. None of them are going to call up Putin, uh, ask him to uh, cut a ceasefire deal with Ukraine. The, the risk to them, their businesses, their personal safety would be huge. Uh, it's a different question about whether we can pressure other um, members of the, the security services elite. But I think the reality is that although some of them, I'm sure, have assets outside of, of the country, uh, in reality, they're not making decisions based on um, based on foreign assets. They're making the decisions that they, they pursue based on their sense of what's uh, best for Russia and also their sense of what's best for themselves uh, in terms of domestic politics. Because if Putin ever does leave the scene, uh, it's someone else in the Russian security services who will uh, be most likely to replace him. So we've done all these things, but there's still major carve outs. And obviously, energy is the big one, right? That's right. That's right. If, if you look at the Russian economy, the two biggest industries are the export of oil, the export of natural gas. And thus far, neither the US or Europe has really tried to target the energy sector. Uh, the, the theory of the case has been that if we target other sectors, the cost to us will be limited and the cost to Russia will be meaningful. And that's that's been true, but there's only so much you can do uh, to Russia setting aside oil and gas. And so I think we've basically reached the limit uh, with the measures today of pain you can impose on the Russian government uh, and the Russian economy without beginning to start to restrict Russia's ability to export oil and gas. Chris Miller, director of the Foreign Policy Research Institute's Eurasia program, author of Putinomics, Money and Power in Resurgent Russia. This is an Odyssey original. Find us and others on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.